When I get an intuition, an epiphany, it's gestalt. It's from the top down. It usually has a minimum of details to secure its position from my consciousness. But um, because I know to, to, when when I when I uh, recognize something as being true, I don't need a whole bunch of facts to intellectually analyze and and thus verify it. But that doesn't help for communication purposes. So when I have these epiphanies, it's useful for me to repeat myself, hoping hopefully I will explain myself a little differently and maybe a little easier for you to understand and grapple with what it is I'm trying to present to you. So here we go. So I did a prior recording on um, transience in which I said that simulators mistakenly think that there's a reversal of time um, and in reality it's an effect without a cause. And I didn't really give enough explanation to what I mean by that and I can see why. So what I've learned today or what I've had to accept (laughs) is a better way to put it is that conservation is indeed a law. But it is a law with limited jurisdiction. But the limitation is kind of minor because most of the time it's true. And that's probably why everybody keeps saying it's a law. And they're even tempted to and encouraged by uh, our mediocre uh, <laughs> uh, teaching institutions um, to claim that it's a law all the time when in fact it's not. It's not in the case of transience, and I'm going to tell you why. But first, let's go back to conservation of energy. I used to think recently, in the last several months, in the course of my writings, uh, it actually, it occurred while I was writing Wikipedia, uh, Wiki, uh, Wikimedia. No, uh, Wikimedia, Wikiversity. Wikiversity, free energy does not exist. And what I learned while writing and editing that draft was that There's this article on Wikipedia called um, Isolated Systems or something to that effect. And it's a hypothesis in want of a law because it's a hypothesis for the purposes of analysis only. And to analyze systems of energy, you want to analyze their inputs and outputs and account for everything. To do that, you have to presume isolation from the environment, yada, yada, which of course is not true, and the article admits that much. Um, But then it says, well, very often uh, systems of energy kind of stabilize, and so it kind of looks like they're isolated, even though we know they're not. That's kind of a fudge. Not kind of. No, that is a fudge. And fudges don't work when you're dealing with laws. Okay? So that really is not the predicate for conservation of energy. Um, If it were, it would make conservation of energy a hypothesis, not a law. And um, due to my own ignorance, I assumed it was a hypothesis, and now I know better. So here's the predicate for conservation of energy. It is a law because it is predicated on another law known as Newton's law of action. For every action, there is an equal and opposite, underline several times the word opposite, reaction. Or, I don't know, I suppose uh, you could use the word resultant. (laughs) Buckminster Fuller made a distinction between reaction and resultant, but um, I still don't understand that distinction, so I'll just blur the lines between them and use either one interchangeably, be that as it may.
we take Newton's law of for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction, and we look at software designers who design simulators based on known electrical engineering and physics theories, and they create this this uh, point of view or this mentality that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. In other words, everything is accountable. You can always go back in a lineage of actions to see w what happened prior, and there's no end to looking backwards. You can keep looking for infinite eternity, and you'll keep finding actions behind it. Well, that helps with the idea of accountability, which is the whole point to conservation of energy, is accountability. That you know where everything came from because you know, I mean, you know why everything exists because you know where it came from. Well, trans, I said in my prior recording, transients are an effect without a cause. And when viewed this way, I can see now why the simulator has problems with it. It assumes it's a cause without a prior cause. And thus two things arise from that, two anomalous opinions that the simulator presents to us. One is that time went backwards in order to make it possible for, for this anomalous event of a transient to occur. And the second thing is, if you capture it with insuitable capacitors and inductors, which most people don't do, and consequent to that capt captivation, you also do not let real power get in the way, that transient will compound itself on itself and keep growing its reactive power amplitude, its VARs, until you want to make use of it and pass it through a resistive load of any type, a resistor or a diode, you know, turn it into DC, although the voltage is still cockeyed, <laughs> but at least we can get the current to go forward uh, using, you know, full diode bridge alone. But passing it through a resistive load or a resistive component, we can literally turn it into real power. And so now the dictum that is a lie, that uh, reactive power is useless, is a lie. It's lossless. It's not useless. But unlike reactive power reacting to the application of real power applied to a reactive component such as a capacitor or a coil of wire, this has no causation behind it. A transient has no cause. And thus it has no accountability, no um, enslavement, no bondage to the prior moment in time before the transient occurred. We don't do anything to make a transient happen that to, as a result. We, do, we fail to do something to allow a transient to occur. And because the transient is more than willing to happen on its own without any help from us providing a causation leading to a transient. You know, a non-action is not a cause. You can call it that way all you like, but it's not because there's no causal linkage and thus there is no accountability between your failure to do something and the um, transient arising consequently. There, there's no linkage of um, accountability, and so conservation is not applicable, and you can't 
follow backwards in time why or where, I should say, not why, but where that transient came from. It's just there. It just appeared on the scene without a progenitor bringing it, begatting it in the biblical sense, you know, um, birthing it into being. It, there's nothing there. And so the, tra- the, the simulator looks at that and says, you know what, that's weird. <laughs> and, but, okay, so now you, you're capturing it among ca- uh, two or more capacitors and two or more coils of wire, bouncing it back and forth among those four or more components, reactive components, and the thing compounds itself because it's not tied down to conservation of energy. It's not tied down to a legacy, a history, a family lineage of actions, spawning reactions, spawning further reactions. It just has no lineage. It literally comes into being of its own whatever, of its own motive power, I don't know. It just comes into being because we allowed it to. And so because of this um, mindset that electrical engineers have when they become software designers of simulators, the simulator really has no choice but to say, hey, look, guys, the transient is flowing backwards in time because it's an effect rather than a cause, because that's the way reactive impedance works. Reactive impedance works, we, we, you know, back EMF. We apply energy to a coil, and what does it do? It kicks uh, energy back at us in reverse direction to fight us in the future when we want to apply energy to that coil again in the next cycle or half cycle. I'm not sure how it works, but in the future, keep it gen- gen- general and broad, it fights us in the future with back EMF. So, but here's this situation in which we get reactive power without a cause. And so it's back EMF without, a, without an EMF. And so the simulator thinks, oh, that missed. In order to make sense of it, it assumes time went backwards because that's the only way the simulator can explain it, its existence. And maybe that is the correct way, you know, from a physics standpoint. We don't know. I don't know. You don't know. Because nobody studies it. We all brush it under the rug and say blah, blah, blah. Conservation is a law all of the time when it's not. Under these circumstances, it is not. Because you have to have a prior event spawning a future event to qualify conservation of energy. There is no other way around it. And when there is no cause to an effect, when there is no application of real power to create a reversal of power, a reactive power response, then you literally have backwards time. And that's why the simulator looks at it and, and that way and claims that that's what ha- that is what happened. When you divide power into energy under microcap 12, 64-bit version, or the other way around, doesn't matter, it's simply a you know, uh, division process, a, a ratio. You, when you take a ratio proportionality between power and energy, you get a negative value. Whether it's a fraction or an integer doesn't matter. You ignore the amplitude and you just focus on the polarity of sine. If it's negative, that means it's the, the, the time, um, uh, what's it called, the time step, the time interval, excuse me, the time interval that the simulator used to evaluate the uh, transient's activity during that interval, time went backwards. 
Now, the length of the interval varies over time because the simulator is free to evaluate activity based on whatever duration of time interval it chooses to, it thinks is correct to use or whatever. You know, it, it, there's some reason for it. I don't know what it is. The fact of the matter is it gives us a polarity of sign and that's all we need to, to focus on at the moment in this, in, in our beginning to under, try to understand what a transient is. It's, a, it's something that has no karma. It has no responsibility to anyone's authority. It does what it pleases if allowed to do so. So it's not a question of requiring authority. It requires liberty. That's all it requires. We give it liberty to compound itself by providing the correct environment of components and, and their relationships with each other in a circuit and the thing will compound itself to explosive amplitude if not regulated or cut off at some point um, or expended or something. It has to be stopped because if you give it a load, very often all the load does is cause it to compound even faster. So that's not the solution unless you give it a humongous additional load, but we're talking zeros and zeros of decimal uh, point values to the left of the decimal point when, yeah, to the left of the decimal point in dealing with, you know, what size capacitances or inductances do we have to give it, or resistances do we have to give it. So huge you won't be able to provide it. The universe won't even be able to provide it. So, <laughs> assuming, <laughs> I'm assu that's a big assumption on my part. Okay, forget the universe. But we can't provide it. There's no way we can. That's what I've seen under simulation. So that's the, the, the wrong way to go about it. I have done simulations in which I did find very high values of, let's say, inductance or resistance, but they're so ridiculous, there's no way you could build anything like that. I mean, we're talking way beyond Terra, let alone, Goog, uh, let alone uh, Giga or Mega, let alone Kilo. I mean, we're talking huge values of either resistance or inductance, you know, to really collapse that raging surge of a transient when we fail to get in its way early on in its development. And of course, that's very easy to, to uh, make that error because it can develop very quickly. So quickly that by the time you see it, it's too late. It's already too late to try to put a stop to it. Um, I, be I believe his name is Paul Nelson. I can't remember his first name. Um, he spent 10 years putting down microgrids for rock concerts and he had to supply his own energy to all of the... He was in charge of setting up, you know, putting the grounding rod, the 9-foot copper grounding rods, pushing it into the earth, you know, hammering it into the earth and connect, connecting it to the um, gasoline-driven uh, um, AC rotary generator and that has its own meter and then he had all the meters in his console booth um, and then he had all the cables uh, uh, across the audience and then the, all the mics he had to set up on stage for the various instruments and, um, and then all the speakers and the huge woofers and whatnot. And if, if he, when he was watching the dials, the meters, the meter on the, on the, um, 
on the uh, generator was always constant. It never varied. And, and that's the way you'd expect of a voltage source. It never varies. But the meters were free to vary under certain circumstances. And uh, we're, there are, without getting into the details of how that can happen, but the point of me bringing it up is, is not that. The point of it is that if he didn't cut the power and shut down the whole system early on when he saw the, the needles on uh, his various needles sweeping into ever larger arcs, both maximums and minimums, positives, negatives, whatever it was that was it was oscillating between. I, I don't recall. I didn't ask him. But it was the needles would oscillate back and forth and they would cover greater and greater sweeps with each uh, time that it rocked to the right or to the left. If he didn't cut it off right away, not even wait a second, some woofer was going to explode in front of the audience. There was no way to deny it. He had 10 years of experience to back that up. Meanwhile, the meter on the rotary generator is constant. Where did all the extra energy come from? Well, there are two ways. One way is through this tr transient phenomenon that I'm explaining. The other way is something that um, was discovered, I think, in Edison's DC system early on by Steinmetz, was that a small amount of energy keeps getting congregated into a um, transmission network and captured there and accumulates. So with each, with the passage of time or with the passage of oscillations, if it's an oscillating system, but in a DC system, it was very easy for energy to get caught up and start to oscillate. Even though it's a DC system, it would, <clears throat> and actually now I'm segueing into, into one of the explanations that I found on the internet. When you have cable connections, the connection serves as a capacitance, inline capacitance. <clears throat> And so when you've got two or more of these capacitive junctions in a whole, you know, complicated uh, transmission network, such as a microgrid that he would set up for, you know, connecting everything together, even though it was coax cable, um, well, maybe it wasn't, I don't know. <laughs> but in any case, once you get energy oscillating between these capacitive junctions, Anything could happen, and it'll just keep building up. And that's probably what he was seeing build up, sweeping the needles going left to right in ever-enlarging uh, arcs. That's not a transient. That's just the leakage of energy getting caught up in your transmission network, creating its own set of oscillations at its own frequency and accumulating as it's being fed because the energy is being drawn off and so from the system, and so you're actually feeding it which means it's wasted energy that's not going to the places where you want it to go, such as the speakers or the mic on the stage. Well, that's not a whole lot of energy expenditure, but the speakers are the big ones. So you're not sending all the energy to the speakers like you wanted to, and eventually that oscillation of energy is going to overcome any impedance there might be within those capacitive junctions getting in the way or the inductive um, impedances of the length of each uh, cable between the capacitive junctions. Whatever impedances are getting in the way, eventually that buildup of energy is going to, going to overcome those fixed limitations, and God knows where it's going to head, and in his case, it would always go to the woofers or something and blow up the woofer. Um, so anyway, I got a little off topic, because that's not a transient, but it, it points out 
the fact that when something like a transient is going to blow up, if you don't engineer it not to blow up, but to be regulated in advance, then it, you're not going to have adequate warning to try to regulate it after the fact when you poorly designed the, the situation. So you went halfway and said, well, then he kept talking about this free energy phenomenon, and uh, let's just throw things together. No, you better plan ahead. And that's why I spend so much time uh, simulating uh, possible circuits because uh, that's what engineers do. They want to make sure they uh, take care of the one-second flood, the ten-second flood, the one-hour flood, let alone um, the one-year flood, you know. I mean, and the ten-year flood. Maybe we don't worry about the hundred-year flood, but... Uh, until it happens, and then whoopsie, you know. Well, we didn't engineer for it, you know, but to safeguard the the consumer. But uh, we we engineered for everything else. There's the shorter duration ones that happen more, that are more likely to happen more fre frequently and be less severe. So it didn't cost us as much as worrying about the hundred year flood. Well, that's kind of like what you're dealing with with electrical engineering. All you can do is a statistical analysis of uh, what are your worst-case scenario, scenarios that happen most frequently. Okay, we'll prevent those. Well, excuse me, not the worst case, but the, the lesser case that happen more frequently, and we'll prevent those and not worry about the worst-case phenomena that happen once every millennia, you know. <laughs> we won't worry about that. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> but that's your choice. <laughs> um, all right, so I hope I covered everything. Let's see. Um, yeah, so it's really, so now I, I have to admit that conservation of energy is a law indeed, but I concede only because I concede that it's not true all of the time, it's just true most of the time. So it, that, that, how can it be a law then, see? It can't be. If it's only true 99.999999% of the time, uh, well, why? Because we... You know why we can say safely that it's 100% of the time? Because we engineer the situation to be that way 100% of the time. Didn't I say that you have, it takes uh, a set of conditions to encourage the transient to build up? So, And if you don't do all those things, it's not going to happen. And it's not even going to appear in the first place. If you have so, the application of so much voltage, line voltage, where's it, it's not even going to happen. It's going to be suppressed. So that's why people can get away with saying conservation of energy is a law all of the time because they make it so. It's after the fact. It's reverse logic or circular logic, if you prefer, which is the same thing, right? <laughs> and that's what I see, this attitude of assuming that, oh, we have to, it's true, uh, this conservation business, so we have to give the load all the energy it requires plus extra to cover losses. And so with that kind of mentality... This, this phenomenon uh, that I'm describing is never allowed to occur. Let alone, if you did allow it to occur, you didn't capture it, and so you just lost your chance. That transient was so short-lived. It came and it went, and it's gone, and now you've got no energy in the system. Gee, what were, what were you expecting? What were you thinking? You know, you, you thought there was free energy available? No, there's not. Well, you didn't capture it, see? <laughs> just because... You lowered your input voltage doesn't mean um, that free energy is taken care of. There's some other steps you got to deal with. You got to capture that transient after you've allowed it to materialize, to manifest itself. 
So yeah, if you don't even allow it to materialize, then yeah, 100% of the time, if you don't allow it to materialize, then 100% of the time, conservation of energy is still a law. Ooh, because we made it a law in practice. It's not a law in theory. It's a law in practice, and there's a big distinction between the two because the policy is what's making it a law. After the fact, after we apply that policy to how we engineer things and operate things that we've engineered, then it becomes or then it appears to be a law because it's true all the time, because we made it true all the time, okay? It's the implementation, the execution of policy, the presumption that it's true, so we implement certain methodologies to make it true all of the time in all of our appliances and all of our networks, except when something happens like the northern, the electric utility grid of northern India, uh, the generators go offline, and all of a sudden, overunity happens. Where did that come from? Well, maybe not from a transient. Maybe it just came from the environment and built up. But regardless, conservation of, en is, of energy is only a law because of policy to make it a law all of the time, to not allow it to rear its ugly head. And when uh, to its falseness to rear its ugly head, and then when the falseness does, uh, we shove it under the rug and say, blah, 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 blah. Well, the fact of the matter is, somebody wrote a scientific paper uh, documenting what happened in northern India whenever the uh, generators went offline? They got over unity. Not enough to power everybody's homes, but enough that is not accounted for. Where did it come from? Because they didn't take their environment into account or they didn't uh, study transients like I do. So, you know, we can sweep it under the rug as long as we, as long as we can succeed at sweeping it under the rug. Then... This uh, fiction of saying that conservation of energy is a law all of the time under all circumstances will continue to be a fiction that everybody believes in. That's just the way it is. It's policy that makes it so. And we're a robust culture, you know. The Western civilization is so robust. I don't see any chinks uh, falling apart anytime soon. Do you? So it's going to continue to be... Um, advertised as a law all of the time and um, no uh, feebleness in sight in the near future. Uh, there's, it's probably going to be unforeseeable a, a series of events because that's usually the way cataclysms happen is not one failure but a series of failures one after another and then you've got disaster because we're usually pretty good at engineering against disaster. So it'll take a, a multitude of failures for us to see the truth of the matter. And there may not be uh, too many people around to see it, quite frankly. So it'll go underappreciated, and the bulk of humanity will go on believing in their fables of uh, belief, is what it amounts to. I hope I've covered this enough. Um, I think so. So it's Newton's law of action and reaction that I was overlooking. And that is the justification for conservation of energy, and it's the only justification. But it's only true so long as Newton's law is true. And when you have an effect that has no cause, when you have a reaction going in reverse direction to a cause that never happened, 
then we don't have a cause for reference. And so now the reaction becomes our reference and the simulator, to make up the difference, has to tell us that time went backwards. And it's not just the simulator. Don't, don't, don't think that, oh, well, simulators, you can't believe them. Where do you think they came from? All they are are automated r- robotics to do what the engineer does on his own. The engineer does the same thing. The engineer takes math equations that he knows he, he needs to take if he wants to engineer something in advance, and he goes and crunch the, crunches the numbers. The simulator does it for you. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing at fault with simulators, especially in today's era of 64-bit registers. A numeric a round-off error is impossible. Pretty much, it's impossible. Near, just about nearly, uh, it's so so impossible that it's <laughs> as good as saying it's not possible. So it can't be numeric round-off error. Um, it it it's really the it's mind-boggling how much how many different excuses we come up with to recognize that something is possible, but you do have to take responsibility for it. Because a transient is a wild stallion. It, it's it's going to want to do all kinds of crazy things. And you got to be in there in advance to prevent a, um, a ca- catastrophe from happening. So that's usually the safety first mentality is to engineer against transients because it takes extra work, extra effort to safeguard dam- the damaging of equipment and, and the maiming of lives for that matter. You know, it's it's if if we don't take that extra measure, then people get hurt and property gets damaged. So it's more work, more effort to deal with free energy. It's it's not less work on the part of the uh, designers and engineers who who design these systems to run on free energy. It takes more work, not less, but only up front, and then it takes greater intelligence to operate it. You know, because we're not dealing here with flashlight circuits that do um, reflect the conservation of energy law. Oh, perfectly well, because it's so simple. You got a load and you got a source and you got some wires connecting them and that's it. And the switch, yeah, it, it might create a little bit of a transient there, but it's quickly suppressed because we're giving it full voltage. So we don't have to worry about anything. But it's a dumb circuit. It's not very intelligent, so it can't even begin to hint at free energy, let alone to give us the, the uh, demand of complexity to make it happen safely and, pra- in a, and in a practical manner. That takes extra work. So I hope I've given you enough information here. Enough said, that's that.